a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Hebrews. And I'd like for us to look at the latter half of the second chapter. It's a passage that I think pulls together some of the things that we've been uh, talking about, points them up, and uh, I'd like to use it as sort of a background for what I have to say tonight. So, Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 10. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. You'll notice he says, in bringing many children, the familial metaphor. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason... Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters, in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. We've tried to point up some of the implications of the Trinity in terms of the different view of God that you have that comes from this, the different view of salvation, the different view of the relationship that we have to God. But I suspect that you, like me, the thing that impresses you most is that it's the Trinity that makes possible the Incarnation. Because there is no way the Incarnation could have taken place if it weren't for the triuneness of God. The Father could send the Son to become one of us and to give his life for our redemption. Now, why did God need to send him to become one of us? Why was the incarnation necessary? It's interesting, the passages of Scripture that you read over a period of years and just sort of read them and they don't mean a great deal to you, and then suddenly one of them begins to come, like somebody turned a light on and you see something that you've never seen before. That happened to me with the 59th chapter of Isaiah and uh, something that I don't think I ever really 
heard anybody else quite say. And anything that I never heard anybody else say or read, I have deep suspicions about it. You remember Tom Oden said in the second volume of his systematic theology, if you find anything original here, you know I've made a mistake. Uh, and I, I, I like that. But uh, in this passage in Isaiah 59, what got me into it was uh, there are five passages in the Old Testament that I located where God looks for a person. And God says, if I can find one person, my circumstances would be different. Now, that intrigued me that the omnipotent, sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, who's without rival or competitor and in total control, he has circumstances. So I don't know what you do with your doctrine of omniscience, but if God says, if I could, you remember the passage in Jeremiah 5 where he said, if I could find one person who does right, does right and lives honestly, I could forgive all the city of Jerusalem for its sin. I could forgive the holy city for its sin. You know, the great burden of the Old Testament is to get the people of God forgiven and, <laughs> and redeemed. Because if you can get the people of God redeemed, the whole world has a chance. But if you can't get the people of God redeemed, the world doesn't have a chance. So passages like that, there are three of them in Isaiah. The 59th chapter is the one that really got my attention. You know it, how it begins. You're familiar with that. His arm is not shortened that he cannot save, and his ear is not heavy that he cannot hear. There is nothing wrong with God. He uh, has the power to redeem us, and he has the heart to redeem us, and he has the ears to hear with if we would just make our petitions proper. After he has said there's nothing wrong with God, he then begins with what's wrong with us. And he says, for your iniquities have separated you from God. And then he describes the iniquities of the elect people, the chosen nation, Jerusalem, the holy city. And it's one of the darkest bits of literature in all the literature of the world. It's a passage that I'm sure Nietzsche was challenged by when he spoke about the time when you need to light the lanterns at noon. Because in that chapter, Isaiah tells about how the moral darkness in the holy city is so great that you stumble at noonday in the darkness and look for a wall to lead you so you can get through the city in its moral darkness. So after he's described, justice has fallen in the street, everything has gone to pot, and he says, I look for a man. I don't think there's any gender in that, but that's what the text Hebrew says, I look for a man. I look for a human person. And he is astounded that he can't find one. Now, if it's interesting that omniscience has circumstances, it's almost more interesting to me uh, that omnipotence has circumstances that omniscience gets surprised. But God says he was astounded that he couldn't find one. Now, why does a sovereign God need a human being? Well, you see, what he's trying to do is get the power of God, which is the answer to our needs, uh, meeting the need of the human heart, of the human race, of the earth, of the, of the creation. He's trying to get the answer and the problem together. And he needs a human being to do that. You know, there was a time when I thought God could sit on his throne and do what he pleased. But it's interesting, God can't sit on his throne and solve a problem in the earth. He's got to solve it in the earth. 
And the problem isn't in heaven, and the problem isn't in God. You know where the problem is? It's in your heart and mind. And if he's going to solve it among us, the problem among human beings, then it says, he said, when I could not find one, my own arm brought me salvation. Now, the fascinating thing is that in Isaiah 40 to 66, the expression, the arm of the Lord, is used a number of times. I don't remember now exactly how many, but at least nine times, I think it is, that expression, the arm of the Lord. Well, I always thought of that arm of the Lord, you know, as the thundering power of Zeus standing on Mount Olympus, ready to hurl his lightning bolt at the earth, you know. But uh, it's interesting, the first verse of Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our report? Now, I never understood that what that meant until I got to this point in 59. What he's saying when he says, Who has believed our report is, I've got something to tell you that's absolutely unbelievable. It's incomprehensible. Who can believe our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then do you know what you get? You get the best picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us, his sufferings found anywhere in the scripture. So it's interesting, he says, when I could not find one, my own arm, Jesus, brought me salvation. So it's interesting, I've I've become convinced that that 16th verse of the 59th chapter is one of the most significant messianic promises in the Old Testament. That God says, when I couldn't find one, I had no option, I had to become one. Now, thanks be unto God, there are three in the triune Godhead. And so, God the Father says to the Son, there's our creation that we spoke into existence, and it has gone gone into sin and darkness, and it it will destroy itself. Now, how do we save it? We've got to become one of them because the answer has to come from where the problem is. You know, God couldn't finish his work without proving that it's possible at the human level for a person to do the will of God. (laughs) What would that say about God's creation if he had to wind up human history with everybody in it an absolute failure? Nobody ever made it. So God's got to find Somebody somewhere that meets the standard. So he says he had no option. He had to become a human being. And so you get married, get pregnant. And she has a baby. And that baby, in that baby, is the answer to human sin. Now, uh, it's interesting that uh, when he becomes one of us, he has to go all the way of becoming actually a human being. Now, the indications are that he became a male. A lot of questions you can ask about that, but there it is, and I don't want to get into those things tonight. But he became one of us. He became one of us enough that when people looked at him, they thought, that's Joseph's boy. They didn't find anything exceptional about him except his life, and his ministry, but as a person, he was just like anybody else enough that you could miss him in the crowd. Because they did. Now, and the temple missed him all the way. But uh, the scripture indicates that he became actually flesh and blood. Now, you see, that's a problem for the philosophers, because if you read the creeds about the God, he is without body or part. And here is God taking on body and part. 
taking on body and parts to where he has blood. And he is one of us. If you cut him, he'll bleed. And if you cut him, he'll hurt. He's just like one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, it's interesting, the word for flesh is the same word which is used for people who live their lives without God, the Spirit. It is in the Latin, that's where we get the word carnal. Same root in carnal as you get in incarnation. He took on human flesh. Now, in Galatians, Paul says, God sent his son, born of a woman, made under the law to redeem those that were under the law. Why? That we might become sons of God. Now, isn't that interesting? The early fathers, they loved this. God became the son of Mary so we could become the sons of God. Isn't that interesting? God became the son of a woman so we could become the sons of God. Now, here we are in this family bit, and there's, there's no way out of it. Interesting that Paul in Timothy, 1 Timothy says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and who is the mediator between God and man? The man, Christ Jesus. So there's a sense in which that passage in Timothy is like a commentary on Isaiah 59, where you've got God in his adequacy, man in his sin. How do you get them together? That one God... And one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. If you're going to save men, he had to become a man. Now, this is the mystery of godliness. Paul says again in 1 Timothy, it is great that God appeared in a body. He became one of us. The passage that we read said, since the children have flesh and blood, and he's talking about you and me, in order for him to redeem us, he had to take on flesh and blood too. And the interesting thing is, he took it on forever. Now, if I knew how to say what I'm going to say, and could say it right, before I got through, we'd all be on our faces. We wouldn't just be asking for seraphim's wings to cover our face and our feet. We'd be on our faces. Because do you know what it means? I don't know what your view of man is. This is what threw all the Greek philosophers into pandemonium. Somebody said, because you see, the Jewish philosophers thought of Jesus as a Jewish rabbi. Said, can you feature in the middle of the divine Godhead a Jewish rabbi? But do you know what is in the middle of the Godhead tonight? A human being with a body. A resurrected body. But there is flesh in the inner being of God tonight because when Jesus ascended, he took our form with him. One of us now sits in the Godhead. The eternal Son of God become flesh. Mary's boy has come a long way. But there he is tonight. Now, I don't know what that does with your thinking about God. I don't know what it does with your thinking about man. But I'll tell you what it does for me. You're far more important than most of us think you are. And your future is far better than most of us think our future is. 
We are to be taken in to the inner life of God. Now, do you understand why he says you ought to be holy? Because who is that one who dwells there? He is the Holy One. And if we are to be a part of it, we need the same moral, spiritual nature that he bears at the human level if we are to be that part of the fellowship in God. And as he said, he wasn't coming, the Hebrew passage, for angels, but he was coming to save the descendants of Abraham, and so he had to be made like his brethren to make atonement, and he had to suffer for us so that he could help us. How human did he become? Hebrews next tells us that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Now, you know, I have trouble believing that. Because, you see, I came from a background like Bill. When I found Christ, I went to my Methodist pastor and told him what had happened. And he, with some apprehension, looked at me and said, Well, you don't think this ought to have to happen to everybody, do you? And uh, that was the beginning of my problematic relationship with my church. Because my pastor had no comprehension of what had happened to me. So I became a good fighting fundamentalist. That's the only way I knew how to survive. I was ready to lay my blood down for Jesus, that he was the eternal son of God. And I wasn't about to think about him as a man. But you know, I missed it for a long time. He has become one of us that he's experienced in principle every negative thing you have ever experienced. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Now, the early church fathers, the Greek fathers before Augustine, you know how they dealt with that? They used this phrase, unassumed, unhealed. If he didn't take it on, it hasn't been healed and there's no healing for it. That means he became sin for us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he took on our form and took on our need. And as the early church fathers, those Greek fathers said, he didn't start where Adam started. He started where Adam stopped. The descent into sin, he went to the bottom of it and he rose out of it. And he rose out of it victoriously, not as God, but as a human being, as a man. Now, the interesting thing is the extent to which the scripture supports that. Now, I didn't have eyes to see that for a long time. But if you will take the temptation of Jesus, I think you will find that it matches the temptation of Adam. I haven't dealt with that enough to say that real well, but I'm convinced that's, that's what you've got there. And one of them is, you know, it was good to the taste. Now you've got a man who hasn't had any food for 40 days. Can you imagine his hunger? And uh, the devil says, you're going to turn five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread and feed yourself? You have the power. You have the divine power. And he says, no, I've got it. But if I use it, I've never been where they are. I don't know about you, but that won't makes me want to bow in adoration before him. He says, uh, well, 
If you'll just jump off this temple, the angels will take care of you. And Jesus said, that guy down there in the courtyard, he doesn't have any angel to take care of him. I don't either. But remember, he's the same one who said to Peter, Peter, if I wanted to, I could ask my father, and he'd send 12,000 angels to take care of me. He had access to all that. But as Philippians says, he emptied himself of all of that right to that power and those prerogatives so he could say, I've been where you are. I've been where you've been. And so the kingdoms of this world, all you've got to do is bow to me and you can have them. No cross. And do you know the greatest battle in your life and mine? is to come to grips with the cross. And you may say, of course Jesus shouldn't bow to get all the kingdoms of the earth to bow before him. And you shouldn't avoid the death to self that is at the essence of real life. And uh, so he's being tested at every point that we are. I don't know about you, but I remember a night when I got to the place where I had a preacher praying with me. I quit kneeling. I just sprawled out flat on the floor on my face, just as I'm glad there was nobody else there. I said, this is the end. If I say yes to him, this is the end. And uh, that's what you've got in Jesus' temptation when he says, all the kingdoms of the earth you can have. If you'll just bend the knee to me, no cross. Now, there's no life without the cross. There was not to be ultimate for Jesus, and there's not for you and for me. So he's been where we are. Now, why does he want to come to be where we are? There are at least two reasons, and there may be more that I haven't thought through. But one of them is so that when he judges us, he's a legitimate judge. You know, I always thought God knows everything, but he's perfectly adequate to judge. But do you know God won't work that way? I like him. He's not willing to judge me until he stood where I've stood and suffered what I've suffered. And so he says, if it takes the incarnation to make the judgment just, the incarnation will come. And so Jesus said, the Father has given all judgment to me. The Father's not the one who's going to judge. It's the one who suffered and bled and been tempted and struggled down here the way you struggle. He's the one who will sit on the bench and judge It'll be one of our own that judges it. And it's one of our own that brings salvation to us. Now, uh, this business of emptying himself. Uh, I envy Bill Coker in his knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. I'd give anything if I had that kind of knowledge. But uh, I've got a little. Uh, and so I work with what I've got. And this past year, I've spent some time in the Gospel of John. And I found something that's very impressive to me, and it's all in prepositions. I thought once I'd preach a sermon on only the prepositions count. And that would make them want to come and attend the church, wouldn't it? But anyway, what are the prepositions? The prepositions are three phrases. Ophem out two, ophet out two, and exem out two. And what are they? From myself, out of himself, 
are from himself and out of myself. They are used, let me see how many times I've got here. There are 12 usages of these prepositional phrases in the Gospel of John. Now, let me cite for you what they are. In the fifth chapter, the one we started with, where Jesus heals the man who's been sick for 38 years, and he does it on the Sabbath, and they say, you're working, you're breaking the law, and he says, my father worked, and they said, you're making yourself equal with God. He says to them, when they get on his back, he says, the son can do nothing by himself. So I didn't break this law. <laughs> you got to implicate God in this thing. The Father. I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what I see my Father do. And what he says is, I can do nothing out of myself. Now, my one, the translation here in this testament says by myself. But it says out of myself. Now, I like the out of myself better than the by myself. Because the by myself gives you a little bit of a sense of autonomy. There is no autonomy for a creature. But he's saying, I can do nothing out of myself. In 7, 17, and 18, he's teaching. And he says, my teaching is not out of me. It's not from me. It comes from him who sent me. In the 28th verse, he's standing in the temple courts, and the temple leadership is around him, and he says, I am not here from myself. I didn't originate this idea. And so you get this sense of sentness in Jesus, that he's here, not on his own, he's sent, and somebody else sent him, and it's the Father. In 8.28, he says, when I am lifted up, you will know that I am he. And you will know that I do nothing from myself. I only do what my father has taught me. 8.42 I have not come on my own. I have not come from myself. This redemption business didn't originate in my mind. It originated in the father. Do you know the shock in the Gospel of John to me that came about ten years ago as to who the main character is? You know, I always thought Jesus was the main character in the Gospel of John. He's not. The main character is the Father. Because Jesus is here because the Father sent him. And when you get to Calvary, the main character is not the guy on the middle cross. It's the guy who sent him to the middle cross. And you're going to tell me who suffered the most. Now, the Greek philosophers didn't believe God could suffer. You going to tell me God didn't suffer? He knew everything that Abraham knew when he raised that dagger to put into the breast of his son. God knew it. In 10.18, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down out of myself. <laughs> you notice what's happened? He said, there's one thing I do from me. Up to this point, everything he's done, he's done out of his father. But now, he's doing one thing out of himself. You know what it is? He's laying down his life. Sacrificing himself. 
The only place where I can find that Jesus uses the expression out of myself is when he is sacrificing himself, laying down his life for us. It is the one place where I have the right to exercise my right in my life. Everywhere else, I ought to be living under his authority and control and by his inspiration and grace. But that grace ought to bring me to the place where I can do one thing on my own. With his grace, I can choose to lay down my life for Christ and for those to whom he has called me to give my life. Now, 1249, he says, I did not speak out of myself. The Father who sent me commanded me as to what I was to say. 14.10, the words I say are not from myself. 15.4, no branch can bear fruit from itself. It must abide in the vine. Do you want to be fruitful? You've got to get a source other than you. Sixteen thirteen. When the Spirit comes, he will not speak from himself. But the Spirit will speak what the Father gives him to speak and what is glorifying to the Son. Do you notice the total other-orientedness of this whole thing? The source of Jesus' life did not come out of himself. When he says, I can do nothing of myself, that's not talking about whether he has the ability to do it. It is his choice. I choose to do nothing from myself. So what he did was, he emptied himself of his rights to live his own life. And he emptied himself of those rights so that you and I could be redeemed. Now, let me tell you where I've come on that. How far did he become one of us? I'm now convinced, until somebody can prove it otherwise to me, when God became a man, the Son, eternal Son, in Jesus, he put aside, while he was here, all of the means of grace that are not available to me. So that when Jesus walked among us by his own choice, he had access to nothing that is not available to me. Now he had the, he had the right to them, and he had the capacity to use them, but he opted out of all of the resources of divinity that are not available to me. He became, without giving up his deity, he took our place. Now, if that's so, that means that a man can live a pretty good life. I don't know about you, but I've tried it. <laughs> How did he do it? The Gospels are very clear. He lived his life in the power, not of himself, but in the power of the Spirit. He was conceived with the Holy Spirit. So Mary had a baby. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry. That was what made him the Christ, the anointed, Christos, Mashiach, the anointed one, the Spirit on him. 
He was led by the Spirit. And where did the Spirit lead him? The Spirit led him into the wilderness and into the temptation. He was filled with joy, Luke tells us, by the Spirit. The joy that filled him when the 72 came back and he said, I've seen the devil falling from heaven, you know. He he was exalted and the exaltation in his spirit had its origin in the Holy Spirit. He did his remarkable life of signs in the power of the Spirit. You remember Luke says when they came and said uh, he's got, yes he has power but it's demonic. The power of Beelzebub. And Jesus said if I by the finger of God in uh, Luke but in Matthew he says if I by the Spirit of God cast out devils then the kingdom has come to you. How did he overcome the devil? By the power of the Spirit. He has opted out of his own power. But now, let me tell you the verse that really got to me. It's in Hebrews again. I never saw this verse until about six months ago. It's in the ninth chapter. If you had read it to me before that, I would have said, oh yes. And it would have been meaningless. But now, it takes on a whole world of meaning for me. He's talking about uh, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. Through Went through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, verse 11 of chapter 9. He entered once for all into the holy place. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He had to be a man with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified. Now here's the verse, verse 14. How much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? Now, what interests me is that the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us the key to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. You notice what it says? Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now that word without blemish there is the New Testament equivalent of the word which is used in in Genesis 17 when God says to Abraham, walk before me and be thou, the Hebrew is Tamim. And we translate, sometimes translate it most commonly perfect. But here, it is exact, it is the Greek counterpart of that word, without blemish. You see, that sacrifice of Christ was perfectly acceptable to the Father. It did the job. Now how did he do it? He did it in the power of the Spirit. Now you know, uh, you know what he said to us on the last night that he was alive? His disciples said, you're not going to leave us, are you? He said, yeah. 
They said, how are we going to make it without you? He said, it's better for me to go. They said, how can this be? That it's better for you to go. He said, because I'm going to send the one who's the key to me. And I'm going to give him to you. And the same spirit that has been the key to my incarnate life here is going to be given to you a free gift. And you're going to have in you the one that's been in me. Now, if his life came out of that, and he gives me the Holy Spirit, I understand those audacious lines in the New Testament where it says, imitate God. I sat down about two years ago to read through the book of Ephesians from beginning to end of the city. And I was sort of lost in it, and I came to the first verse of the fifth chapter, and I laughed out loud. And I said, boy, boy, you lost it. (laughs) Because you know what it said? My translation said, imitate God. I said, me imitate the omnipotent one? There are few people in human history who've tried that role and ended up as fools. Imitate the omniscient one? See, if i got a question and pursue it, my problem is that if I get the answer to it, I always get ten more questions that I don't have answers to. So my knowledge is not exploding knowledge, it's exploding ignorance. And he is omniscient. He knows all things. Omnipresent. I'm stuck in one spot and one place. Me imitate him, but then he goes on and explains. You know what he says? Live in agape. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. You know how we picture God? Somebody to obey. And we have to. But do you know the God we are to obey? Is the God who sacrificed himself for us. Now how are you going to get free so you can do that? How are you going to get free from you? That's the biggest battle we have. You know, the only way you can get free from you is the Holy Spirit. That's the reason you cannot separate the Holy Spirit from sanctification. Because the Spirit is the one that has to release me from me. And how does he release me? By bringing me to the cross the way he brought this eternal son to the cross. And I die to me and my way. And he resurrects me to his way. And it's possible for me to begin to lie Live a life that lived not out of me, but lived out of him. And that's the reason you get a Jake the Shazer, who can love a Japanese guard while the Japanese guard beats. That's the reason a young Methodist preacher can love his church treasure while she's excoriating. It's he. It's God within us. I think that's what he died on the cross to do for you and for me. And let me tell you, that's better than salvation from the consequences of sin. That's what you call salvation from sin. Now, is that really possible or is that just a dream? Boy, we're in a mess if it isn't possible. Because do you know the only way you'll ever be fulfilled? It's when you're living for something beside you. 
As long as you've got your finger in the pot, it's defiled, and you know it. And if you don't, everybody around you does. Now, there are some people who don't know that they've got their finger in the pot and they're defiled. Everybody around them knows it. You've got them in your life, I've got them in mine. They may be preachers of the gospel. They may be missionaries. I'm not self-invited to speak to the international staff of a missionary society. So I preached this. And the president got up and said, I didn't hire him to come do this. And you know why he said that? Because it was about to come apart because of tension between missionaries. Why the tension? We protect our own interests. How do you get upset with somebody who wants to sacrifice himself for you? The reason you get upset is because you're not like it. And you know you should be. Now, now I understand why Jesus so many times said if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. And it's something inside you that wants to save your life. And the only way you can save it is to lose it and get your hands off. And uh, I don't know about you, but I came to the place where I said, how am I ever going to get them off? They're stuck. And he said, if you let me crack your knuckles enough, you'll turn it loose. I said, you better start crackling. Crack it. But there is what he wants to do in every one of our lives. Because you're bound until you get free. And the freedom is when you don't have to live for you. You don't have to live for you. God can do with you what he pleases. He can stick you anywhere. You know one of the things, you know one of the things that troubles me about a lot of the seminary guys today? They're looking for that kind of situation. And you know what God's looking for? God's looking for somebody who can send anywhere. Now, <laughs> you know that the bill reads some weird stuff. <laughs> In the last year, I've read a good bit of the Pope, Carol Boitia. It's interesting, you know, he lived under communism. First he lived under Hitler. Then he lived under communism. And he says the greatest problem of the 20th century was to know what really it meant to be a human. What God intended a human being to be. Well, I sort of was interested in what he had to say. So I found out something about his life. You know what they did with him? He graduated from the university in June, spent the summer kayaking, and September the 1st, Hitler rolled into Poland. And by the October, November, every young man of his age was headed for the Russian front as a German soldier, a Polish soldier in a German military unit. Somebody pulled a a deal for him and got him a green card so that he could work in a in a limestone quarry because limestone was important for uh, developing 
uh, explosives. And so, for four years, he worked in a limestone quarry. When the war was over with, he went to seminary and then to, did his doctoral work and got his Ph.D. When he got his Ph.D., they sent him to Rome for 18 months to learn how Rome worked, to learn how the bureaucracy worked. He thought he was on the way up. They sent him back to Poland then to work on another Ph.D. And then they gave him his first pastoral appointment. And you know where it was? It was so far in the mountains that there was no public transportation to get him there. He had to walk to find his pastoral appointment. I thought somebody was smart. <laughs> because do you know what you've got in the Pope? You've got a parish priest who thinks that way. And the public responds to him. When they sent him back in that far into the boonies, all of his buddies looked at him and said, what did you do wrong? They knew he had offended the hierarchy somewhere. But the hierarchy was making a man that ordinary people would trust. And you know whom you'll trust? You'll trust the guy who's not working for himself. You won't trust anybody else. <laughs> because if he's working for you, you've got to work for you. But if he's not working for himself, you've got a chance to live for something besides yourself. I don't know about you, but you know what I think that comes under? The title? Just plain, entire sanctification. <laughs> That's what Jesus was praying for on the last night. He sanctified himself. He separated himself. Now, how did he get through the cross? This has made the crucifixion a different thing for me. You know, here he is. They've laid the cross out on the ground, and they stretched him out on top of it. A Roman soldier takes a spike and drives it right through the palm of his hand, fixing him to that wooden beam. Now, remember, he was just like you. What do you think went on in his body at that point? Every tissue in his being was screaming out for relief. And he looks up, and that Roman soldier, those Roman soldiers have stretched his other hand out. And the Roman soldier who drove the one into one hand has the spike and the mallet raised to drive it into the second. Who is he? He's the one who spoke the universes into existence. Do you know where the Roman soldier gets the strength to lift the mallet and drive the spike? He gets it from the one he's killing. Because do you know what Hebrew says about Jesus? He sustains all things by the word. And so when he could send for the angel, he looks up and says, go ahead. How do you do that? Hebrew says he did it through the power of the Spirit. And Jesus said, I want to give that Spirit to you. 
You're going to tell me it isn't possible to live a self-sacrificing life? You're going to tell me it isn't possible to live a life where you get beyond interest in your own rights? Read Corinthians. Paul says, you know, I've never heard anybody preach on this. All things are lawful. I've heard him preach on that. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. But the next verse, I've never heard anybody preach on. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. In the same chapter, he says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage. But that of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me. As I imitate Christ. What if we live that way? Do you know that's the only secret to personal fulfillment and the only secret to real freedom? Anybody ever live that way? And I remember when I first saw this in Philippians 2, after that, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want to send Timothy to you. He's the only one I have that doesn't look after his own interests. So I read that and I thought, Timothy, wonder how he got there. He must have been a nice guy. <laughs> and then I realized nobody ever gets there because he's a nice guy. The only way anybody gets there is the way Timothy got there. By the same grace that got Paul there. And the same grace that got the eternal Son of God incarnate in Jesus Christ there. And so, Paul says, imitate God. Live in agape. Are you living for something beyond yourself? You're living for us. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Now, is any self-interest left in you? I want to tell you good news. You can get rid of it. And if you can't, this gospel isn't true. Now, the church doesn't know that. You can get rid of it through the grace of Christ. That's what I wanted to, what I felt I should preach to. If you're still struggling with somebody, I want to give you a word of hope. There's deliverance. And it won't be through your goodness or mine. And every one of us needs it just as much as the other. And it comes at the same price, cost for every person. It's the same, same price. And what is it? Where we look up and say, I want all you've got for me, but in order for me to have it, you've got to have all there is of me. So take me, take me, possess me, seize me, don't let me go. Make me yours.
madness, saying, Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my soul for good theology, and I shall conquer her be. I sink in life's alarm when by myself I stand, when I stand and live out of myself. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong will be my hand. Are you a prisoner? Let's bow our heads together. How do we ever thank you, Lord? the Incarnation. Thank you that you descended. You left heaven. You laid aside the prerogatives of deity. And you became one of us. And you did it so that we could become one with you. As the Father is in Christ, the Father can be in me. And as the Spirit is in Christ, the Spirit can be in me. And the creature can be a God-bearer. So, Lord, open our hearts. And if there's any protection of our own egos, any defense of our own rights, any struggling for what we want, Lord, let us lay those down at your feet. And let us have the grace to say, Lord, I want to be where you want me to be. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live my life for what you want me to live it for. I don't want to live out of me. I want to live out of you, Lord. And Lord, thank you that you can enable us through the Spirit of God to do it. So fill us with yourself tonight. And let us walk back into our local situation clean. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.